Welcome to this BMJ Roundtable at the Nuffield Summit. I'm joined by people who've been attending the summit and our topic today is how we can, as doctors and clinicians, manage and, and hopefully minimise the demand on health services. Uh, I'll go around and invite uh, those speaking to introduce themselves. Ash. Um, my name is Ash Sony, I'm a pharmacist and I'm the immediate past president of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. My name is uh, Andrew Fernando, I'm a full-time GP in North Hampshire uh, and medical director of an out-of-hour service. I'm Martin Marshall, I'm a GP in East London, uh, Vice Chair of the Royal College of GPs and an academic at UCL. I'm Eileen Burns, I'm President of the Royal, uh, the Royal, the British Geriatric <laughs> Society, we're not quite royal yet, uh, and I'm a practising geriatrician in Leeds. Hello, I'm Jeremy Taylor, I'm Chief Executive of National Voices, a national umbrella of health charities uh, championing person-centred care, uh, and I'm not a clinician, I'm a former civil servant for my sins. Hello, I'm Maxine Power. I'm the Director of Innovation and Improvement Science at Salford Royal NHS Trust. Uh, good morning, I'm Judith Smith. I'm Professor of Health Policy and Management and also Director of the Health Services Management Centre at the University of Birmingham. Hello, I'm Candace Imerson. I'm Director of Policy at the Nuffield Trust, which is a health think tank. Hi, I'm Amanda Philp. I'm the Chief Officer of two CCGs in East Sussex and I'm also uh, on the Board of NHS Clinical Commissioners. We've heard... Uh, yesterday and we'll continue I'm sure discussion today about the woes faced by the NHS and the social care system financial crisis facing at, uh, us at every corner with the five-year forward view not we're told adequately funded and the STP's sustainable transformation plans also um, inadequately funded and unlikely therefore to deliver according to some so the question is given these financial constraints how can we um, as clinicians um, and policymakers manage the demand on the health system uh, and what could people individually do and in their organisations to try to reduce demand. In line with the BMJ's patient partnership policy, Jeremy, I'm just going to ask you to give us a few opening remarks to frame our thoughts so that we can put patients at the centre of this discussion. Thank you very much, Fiona. Um, I, I react against the whole notion of managing and reducing demand because it sets up, I think, an unhelpful dynamic in which uh, people with healthcare needs go to clinicians and their stance is, how can we minimise their use of my service? It doesn't feel very welcoming, it doesn't feel very uh, um, appropriate, uh, and it doesn't feel consistent with the principles of the National Health Service. Uh, it's a slight quibble about the way we uh, couch the debate. Um, yes, money is tight, uh, but people will get ill uh, and will need uh, access to healthcare. So I would rather uh, reframe the discussion as how, when people have health needs, can they be responded to in the most appropriate and cost-effective way? And there, there is much that clinicians can do, much that is evidence-based, uh, which could be summed up as work in partnership with your patients and their families uh, to find the best way forward, which may often not be clinical, uh, and may not often, uh, may not always be expensive and highly interventionist, and therein lies the opportunity uh, for cost savings and for more appropriate responses. Um, but I, I don't like a reduced demand and managed demand. It's people we're talking about. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Candice, you've just, um, with colleagues, written a report on, I suppose, demand management of a sort in terms of getting care. What, what, what would be the impact of getting more care out of hospital into the community and that appropriate setting for care? Can you tell us a bit about your conclusions? Well, it's quite interesting because interest, um, when we began working on the report, we were going to um, frame it in terms of demand management and moved away from that precisely because of the reasons that, that Jeremy um, outlined. Um, essentially, the report looks at all the opportunities um, around shifting care into the community and finds that there are um, ways in which um, doctors can work with patients, um, particularly to help them manage their own conditions, better um, active support um, for, for rehab, and crucially, actually, to be a very um, active part in the whole patient journey. So not playing the game of handoff, which I think reduces or can stimulate waste and inappropriate referrals. So really um, supporting the collaboration across the system. 
Um, uh, Maxine, you mentioned also that uh, the, the business about the problem of fragmentation and how that is affecting, if you like, people's ability to respond. Sure, yeah. I, th I think, it, <clears throat> I mean, it's really interesting. Obviously, the whole system at the moment is very challenged by the amount of activity that we've seen in the emergency department over the last um, few months and, you know, a, a system there that is actually in a lot of distress a lot of the time. And, you know, as I go around the country, it's quite interesting to try to, to look at the root cause of some of that. And, and clearly there is fragmentation, but I think there's a sector that we could partner with um, around care and residential homes, which actually um, feels like it's crying out for our partnership, in particular clinical partnerships. So the model, for example, the models of primary care going into care homes vary dramatically across the country. So in the best case scenario, I think we see proactive primary care where there is um, really clear processes in place within care homes for preventing ill health and responding when people need care. Um, and then there are other examples that I went to, for example, this week where um, we've got a, a residential care home who simply are, cannot find GPs to look after their patients. So we've got the whole spectrum and clearly when you feel like you don't have support from clinicians in order to look after the people that you are essentially providing a home for, you will use expensive services in the A&E department even though you know potentially that that may not be the best for your, for your um, residents. So I think there's something about partnering with other sectors and in particular in um, prevention and review which feels like it's a really important role for clinicians. Andrew, let me then turn to you as, as um, someone working at the front end, if you like, at the, at the coalface of out-of-hours care and urgent care. H how would you um, see a, a more, more positive future for NHS in that respect? <clears throat> um, I think the, the concepts of continuity are important. I think there's talk about um, medical homes um, of numbers between 30 and 50,000. Um, the economies of scale that can then up to 250,000 you can run an ACO through. Um, I think GPs need to be given headspace um, and I think that enables them to do prevention very well. I think certainly in, in our area <clears throat> we're not really having the time or the resources to do prevention properly. And I think if the idea of the new models of care is working towards an ACO type organisation, then prevention, working with patients more, more closely, being proactive in nursing homes, all becomes so much more important. <coughs> um, because if you address problems early, you sort them out quicker and it's cheaper. And patients get a better deal and get a better experience. So I think if, if, if we can create some headspace for, for GPs, plus their teams working with nurses, with physios, with pharmacists um, to do prevention better, then I think that takes the pressure off other parts of the system, the more expensive parts of the system. And, and Martin, is that headspace likely to come? I mean, where, where will that... <laughs> where, who, who, is that just a matter of more money or what? It, it, there's no doubt it needs to be created and part of the answer is about, um, is about more resources, having more clinicians of, 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 of various different types in primary care, but also it's about working differently, it's about working smarter. I think um, GPs, for example, I think are probably seeing um, um, problems that they don't have to see um, and there are different ways of working as a GP. But I, I agree entirely, the, the fundamental answer to this problem is, is, is one of recognising that we framed healthcare as a technical endeavour and we need to go back to reframing it as a relational endeavour because when you know your patients and when you know your um, colleagues, me as a GP working with a specialist for example, you behave very differently. So the patients that I know I'm very comfortable having conversations with about what is appropriate and what might be less appropriate help seeking behaviour or where else patients can go. That's very difficult to, to do um, with people that you don't know well. Um, when I know a consultant well, I can have a conversation with them, pick up the phone, ask their advice in two minutes rather than making a referral. That, has, that makes a massive difference. And GPs are all the time making differences about um, rationing of, of resources, you know, what is an appropriate referral, what is an inappropriate referral. I find it very easy to have conversations with patients about that when I know them well, and I don't when I don't. So we need to, we need to go back to reminding ourselves about relationships and continuity. Mm. 
Eileen, as a geriatrician, obviously the, 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 the large proportion of patients now um, finding themselves in a position where they need more care uh, in the older population. Uh, how do you see that um, unfolding? So I think, firstly, I just would like to agree with Jeremy completely that this is really about not saying to people, we're going to manage your demand away, but actually identifying with someone what is the thing that is really their need. And at the moment, we tend to substitute expensive hospital care in some cases when someone would have preferred care at home because that care isn't available in a timely way when they present in crisis. And we heard from Candace yesterday some really good examples of things like ambulance triage services where it's possible to manage a fall in an older person where it's not a marker of a pneumonia and they haven't broken anything in a different way from bringing them down to A&E with that inexorable then. Uh, for, you know, into hospital, risk of further falls, risk of delirium, risk of malnutrition, etc., etc., in spite of everything we do in the hospital setting to try and prevent those adverse events. So I think there, uh, across a range of areas, we can look at what can be done to offer people alternatives. And I think the evidence base is, is tricky because people are creating initiatives and providing local solutions and not necessarily setting up a robust evaluation in the way that would then mean that that uh, project might be reported in a peer-reviewed journal. So when we go to look for the evidence, we can't always find it, but we know that some of these things seem, and seem with a reasonable degree of local uh, before and after comparison with peers, evidence seem to work. So, for example, as, as has already been mentioned, we know that proactive care into care homes, if you focus on the right things, so you look at prescribing and what prescriptions are now redundant, and if you look at advanced care planning, you can reduce admissions to hospital by about 30 to 40 percent, and the families of those people and those people themselves, where they're still, still able to express a view, have told you that's what they want and that's the right thing. Um, so that's one example where we can manage demand in a different way that's the right way. And there are some really interesting examples. Now we've got some risk stratification tools coming through that are really quite interesting. The electronic frailty index is one, which may help us to identify those people who are living with frailty and really moving towards the end of their life. And there's some interesting models of actually saying, let's provide you with a sort of hospice at home type service to support you to live well until you die where you want to be. So I think on those kind of areas of demand, there are some really interesting models coming through, and we've got real opportunity to look at how they might look differently. Um, and I also completely agree, lots of places now are looking at access to geriatricians on the phone, email, in various different other ways to make that primary secondary <coughs> care divide come together. Um, and finally, of course, managing demand within the hospital. We can look at models of senior decision making, makers in A&E, who are, and again, an evolving evidence base for helping people to appropriately avoid admission when there are other pathways they could follow. Uh, and then, obviously, once people are in hospital, lots of examples now of quality improvement, often led by doctors, to reduce falls, to reduce other harms. So I think there's a huge range of things we could and should be doing, and I think there's real interest now in looking at some of those different ways of working that might actually put on better services for better People have hoped it will be. As Candice's uh, reporting mm, suggests. Yes. Ash, pharmacists obviously have a big role to play both in hospital but also in, in being an alternative or, or an additional um, source of, of advice and guidance in the community. Absolutely, and I, I think it's interesting because if you look at the stuff around care homes, where pharmacists, the biggest, second biggest invention, the second biggest cost of the NHS is medicines. And actually, we need to do something about better use of medicines. Between 30 and 50%, we know we're not used the way they design. Pharmacists have gone and worked with care homes. We've demonstrated quite significant savings in terms of better use of the medicines that are there, medicines optimization. We tend to lose sight of the fact that actually there's a whole piece of this, which is about how do we use medicines more effectively than we have done, which is not, which is not demand management. It's actually about shared decision making. Because actually, I remember going to a patient's home who'd been given a set, 
And um, she, she was due to take it that morning. So she took, opened the first one and she went, right, don't want that one, don't want that one. I will take that one, I will save that one for later. But nobody had talked to her until then. And it was the first time I'd seen it because obviously we just prepared, we prepared it, we'd had conversation. But actually she turned around and said, yeah. And I said, so why is that? And she said, because nobody's ever asked me, nobody's ever talked to me about what I want from my medicines. And actually what we were able to do is rationalise that down quite significantly. I think she was taking about 25. We had it down to about five because there were others that she just wasn't going to take. And we had those conversations as to why they were being prescribed. But actually, once she had assessed what she wanted, she made decisions which supported that the way she wanted it to work. So I think there's a lot more we can do, which is about supporting and developing that, that role. Alongside that, there's a whole piece around pharmacists in the prevention arena, which is not just for the frail elderly, but actually, that's the, in some ways the top, of the, the top of the pyramid. How do we support people at a much lower level in, the, in this so that we don't see this continual growth in this, the top end? And actually, pharmacists in, in community settings have an opportunity to provide advice and support at a point when people are apparently well. Because one of the things we do is that we make assumptions. I assume I'm well. I don't actually know because I've not, been, I've not been to anybody to ask. I won't go to a doctor and go, can you tell me if there's anything wrong with me? But I may well find that actually there's some things I can do to my, for myself which I can then help me to improve my own health. And actually having those messages available enables me to make decisions about what I want to do. And pharmacy is a really key resource in that, working alongside general practice to be able to make that happen. And the, th the other stream, the last thing I wanted to talk about was management of long-term conditions. Actually, we have a position where for general practice, it's a real pressure on them, and people are ending up in secondary care because there's so much demand on GP time to be able to manage this cohort of people. Actually, some of those can quite happily be managed by pharmacists. As a prescribing pharmacist, I've managed diabetics, asthmatics, hypertensives, and actually, when I do it, in some cases, I can do it more effectively because I've got more time which releases GP time to do the things they should be doing, the more complex need, which allows that then to, to allow the whole system to have the headspace that we're talking about and creating here. Amanda, you were involved in commissioning as a CCG lead. Uh, what, where do commissioners, uh, what, 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 what role can commissioners bring to, to encouraging um, a, a more appropriate um, places of care, if you like, and making sure that we're not overburdening different parts of the system in, a, in an inappropriate way. Yeah, I think uh, I think there are twofold, uh, two, two parts to this, and uh, the, the role of GP as provider um, is, has already been articulated and is absolutely critical in terms of influencing the way in which uh, primary care is organised um, and delivered, so the creation of federations and what have you, so that we've got better networks, better ability to collectively um, strengthen primary care. Certainly when we're talking about investing in primary care at the moment, there is a, a, what are we investing in given the difficulty of recruiting GPs and the nature of general practice? Um, we need to make sure that we're enabling uh, our, our GPs and uh, fellow um, professionals to reshape primary care uh, to get the best effect. But the second thing, and I think it's critical uh, that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater if you like, when we talk about changes to the commissioning landscape more widely, is the real value of uh, clinical leadership of commissioning. So we have certainly made much, much better decisions about where we put our investment or where we plan to put our investment or um, uh, the decisions around service configuration in terms of safety, this point about meeting patient demand better rather than managing it because of the clinical leadership that has shaped our commissioning decisions. The challenge, however, is, is that we have a, um, a raft of very good uh, clinicians influencing all of us, a, a hinterland of clinicians who are really under the cosh, whose, whose daily work is um, perhaps constraining the ability to think about working differently. So we need, as uh, the organisation supporting those, um, those GPs particularly, to enable them the space um, to think differently and then their support and the resource to do so. So the OD piece, I think, is important because um, oh, uh, sorry. So the organisational development uh, is important because we also, uh, I think, talk about uh, particularly our GPs as individuals um, and I think that we will get much better uh, um, attraction to the jobs as well as uh, job satisfaction um, and outcomes for patients and the population when we have a much stronger team ethos and a collective leadership piece. Our, our clinicians should be leading, doing our place-based leadership across health and care alongside our population patients.
Which leaves me, uh, Judith, I know that you've been working at the University of Birmingham on uh, how we change the training of, of young doctors uh, to, to enable them to behave in the, in the new way that we, we need them to behave. Tell us about that. Yes, because I think, I mean, just picking up on what Amanda was just saying about uh, GPs being involved in commissioning, I think it's important to recognise we've now had almost 25 years' experience of general practitioners being involved in the planning and commissioning of our health services. And over that same period, we've had doctors across hospital, mental health and other services involved as clinical directors and increasingly medical directors and even chief executives. So I think we've... In, um, in research circles, we often talk about that as doctors and indeed other clinicians, increasingly as resource stewards. So just set that as the context to why we've been doing this work at the University of Birmingham, thinking differently about education. Because that begs the question then, shouldn't we be from the outset with young medical students, uh, and again, we are thinking about it with our other clinical professionals as well, introducing them uh, partly to basics about organisation and funding of health and social care, how the system works, but how, how you can, yes, work in teams, how you can work with patients and, and users as partners and so forth, and do that right from the outset um, in undergraduate training, but also in postgraduate training, whether that's if you're studying to be a public health specialist, a general practitioner, a surgeon or whatever. So we've actually just uh, in this academic year launched a, a new intercalated programme for um, medical students in health leadership and management. So for those medical students who choose to do an extra degree as part of their training. And um, we're finding yeah, huge enthusiasm from those students. But really interestingly, some of them saying, until I came onto this programme, I, I just I had no idea about how the internal workings of a hospital I didn't actually understand that health and social care were funded separately and in different ways that so that's actually now leading us at the university to explore how we can have that kind of uh, understanding of uh, leadership management basic health service organization built more firmly into the wider undergraduate um, curriculum so um, it feels exciting and important work and interestingly, it's challenging us within the university to work more collaboratively across those of us who do management and organisation research, those who do clinical work and where appropriate, you know, sometimes our business school colleagues as well. So it's just to say that I think those of us in the education and research world can sometimes be a bit siloed in these ways. So we have to think differently, just as we've been talking about the way we need to think differently across patient groups, you know, funders, primary care, secondary care and so forth. Fiona, um, it's been a very interesting discussion. I mean, a, a big thread of it has been describing what good looks like. Uh, and actually, uh, all around the country, there's fantastic practice, people doing amazing stuff, and a growing evidence base about the things that actually work and make a difference. Some of the evidence is stronger than others, but that there is a growing evidence base. We were involved uh, as National Voices in a programme called Realising the Value, uh, which did a lot to build uh, an evidence base and tools for commissioners uh, for making care more person-centred. Um, my observation about what needs to happen next is uh, there clearly uh, does need to be a greater degree of priority given to what was well expressed in Chapter 2 of the NHS five-year forward view. Do you remember that document? <laughs> uh, which which, which uh, um, we talked about a new relationship with patients and communities. Uh, not, not just because that's a nice thing to have, but because of the growing evidence base that uh, to achieve the goals of NHS and social care reform, you actually need to work in partnership with people. Uh, that feels still at the stage of uh, having lip service paid to it, but not enough energy behind it and not enough priority uh, from the top and all the way down. Secondly, I think there is something about serious investment uh, in and reform of primary care along the lines which are already happening, but it does feel like it's a huge struggle. The, the thing that really seems to be missing is, um, and I don't think there's an easy answer to, to this, we, we, we kind of know what good looks like and we know that we're not there now and that we need to get there, but we, we lack change management expertise in the NHS. Uh, and people don't have the bandwidth to be able to properly engage in sensible systematic change management and everybody's kind of struggling and experimenting, uh, not joining things up and it seems like a complete mess. Um, so um, uh, a lot of the stuff going on, STPs, uh, new care models, uh, primary care home, are lots of initiatives that, that fill one with hope 
Um, but the thing that's missing is how to join it up, how to make it systematic, um, and how to have s uh, consistent leadership from the top, um, informed also by a good understanding of engagement with patients and their representatives. So easy then. <laughs> yes, we'll get that done by lunchtime. Martin. So I think, I think the issue of, of uh, change management brings us back to Judith's point about how do we train our health professionals. And it seems to me we've had a very narrow view of what a medical degree allows you to do in the UK in comparison with other countries, uh, particularly uh, North America. So you know, the, the traditional role of the doctor as a biomedical doctor is still important. There's lots of things that we can do to reduce need, long-term need, by doing the medical stuff well. But the roles as system stewards and system managers and system leaders is fundamentally important and not well taught at the moment, so it's great that other stuff is, is happening. But then there's the third role, which I think we're only very slowly getting into, which is the, the wider determinants of health and the role of health professionals, doctors in particular, in, in addressing wider determinants. And where I work in East London, probably most of the problems that I see are, um, are under demand rather than over demand, um, and they're related to social issues, uh, employment, education, um, uh, housing, um, food, whatever. Um, all things that I feel currently extremely untrained um, to address, and yet I know that if I were trained differently, I could have a significant role in, in addressing. Thank you. Candice. So my point sort of follows on from that a bit, but I don't think we've spoken enough about do we really understand demand? Because actually um, risk management, I think, has been seen as a bit of a one-size-fits-all. We look at, we stratify our population, we identify our high-risk top piece, but actually my understanding of the data is that that top piece doesn't necessarily flow through and impact different bits of the system in an equal way. So the way that demand is hitting primary care is different to the, the demand in A&E, is different to the demand within the hospital. And all too often we sort of take this one size fits all and sort of wait for demand to hit us and then sort of respond to it in the best way we can without going right back to the beginning and thinking, well, what is driving this in the first place? And therefore, what do I need to do to really meet it better? Thank you. Ash. Two things, I suppose. The first is, it's great what's happening with students of the future, the next generation, but they're not really the workforce that are currently there and are going to be there for the next few years. They're going to, they, are the they are going to be the future, but we've got to get through the present to get to the future. <laughs> and I think that, so. there's an element of what we do with the current workforce and how we support them, but there's also an element of not expecting everybody to do everything. There's much more about looking at what we have looking at the resource that we have, determining then how we utilise that most effectively. So is that about training a doctor to do more, or is it about a doctor being able to, be to understand not necessarily a handoff, but how they utilise their system colleagues effectively to support people more effectively? And I think we, we haven't done that particularly well. We've tended to focus on the medical solution, not the health and care solution. And we've not necessarily taken the opportunity to work in that broader, that broader sphere. And if you look at even STPs, their engagement has been pretty poor with beyond the boundaries of where they operate in terms of the, the, the hospital or in some cases not even engaging particularly well with general practice. But and if you're going to make change, it's not going to work particularly well if that's the case. So you've got to look at how and what you're doing to bring all of those skills and opportunity in. Because the challenge you face, unless you understand and get to know what you don't know, you can't change anything that you do. And we have a terrible habit of just concentrating on what we do know and not going beyond it. The other thing, I just one other thing I want to say is that we've done some, we did some work in South London around primary care navigators, and there are various versions of these all over the country, again, going back to different systems. But what was really clear about that was about supporting people not to go into further into the medical model, but demedicalizing and helping them to get to community and voluntary support, which can be much more effective in helping them to be able to be part of their local community and creating resilience within that environment, which will help to strengthen what, what we get as outcomes in terms of care. Thank you. Judith. No, I, just, I want to just follow up on that theme, which, and just to frame it perhaps as public health. Because um, very struck yesterday morning here at the summit when Harry Burns from, from Scotland was talking very passionately about uh, almost a different approach to wellness and, and well-being uh, from his public health sort of perspective. But I think um, 
when I look back over the 25 years we've had of commissioning in the NHS, and it's easy to have a council of despair about that, that and say, oh, it's all sort of withering on the vine or whatever. But I think a really important thing to remember is I think we've had a, a, a pretty good experience of public health professionals um, and public health doctors as well in particular, working much more closely with general practitioners in that sort of commissioning and purchasing uh, process and helping us to think about the priorities and, and investments we're going to make. And I have been a bit concerned the last few years as what's happened to some of that as public health's gone off into local government for reasons we understand, but whether, just be careful, we don't lose the public health doctor in particular being at the centre of the sort of discussions we're having because I think they bring very important other perspectives whether it's to GPs to pharmacists to, and just the one other thing to add there I, I'm a non-executive director on the board of the Birmingham Women's and Children's um, Hospital Trust and we now have a public health consultant as, as a senior sort of uh, uh, colleague in, in, the, in the hospital and he brings a fascinating perspective and helps us to think about how do we um, think when children are coming to our emergency department, how we think about where it is they're coming from, what their other needs are, why is it they've come to us, not to primary care, how are we going to play our role in tackling, uh, whether it's issues of obesity or poverty in our city and so forth. So I just want to, I think there's something there to think about, about public health specialists and what role are they going to play in all of this as we, as we go forward. Thank you. Eileen. Um, I just wanted to take us back to two things really. One is um, the issue around the effectiveness of risk stratification and as, as you said Candace it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag isn't it and I think that we can sometimes focus on the proactive care for a particular <coughs> cohort of people or a particular strand of the population. Actually we can't prevent all illness, we can't prevent people eventually becoming old and frail if they don't get run over by a bus or die of a coronary before they get to old age. So we really need to focus on what might the response be to an acute care need. Um, and I think quite a lot of models of new care that people are looking at are very much focusing on that. What can we do proactively to help that person not to become unwell? And that's obviously to be applauded. And if we can achieve that, that's great. But I think we mustn't miss out the bit of urgent care um, that as we've already discussed around the table quite extensively, can be provided in a different way from rushing down to A&E. Um, and the second thing I thought we should really just maybe think a bit more about is workforce and sort of aligned to that really, the fact that to date, most of the models of an alternative to a hospital admission in the community have not been demonstrated to be less expensive. Um, so there are two things that kind of could potentially work together there. So we know we haven't got enough GPs, geriatricians, nurses in community roles or indeed very frequently in hospital roles also, but thinking particularly about the community. So are there ways we can use staff imaginatively and differently? So we know, for example, that there are really good models of proactive care home management that are run by nurses who've had appropriate training and have got support from either a GP with a special interest or a geriatrician. So we know that it doesn't always have to be the GP who goes in to do that. Um, we know that some of the models um, of providing support have used um, health coaches and lay workers to help support those people. So people who've had training but aren't necessarily healthcare professionals. So we need to just re really, I think, be thinking imaginatively. Hopefully at some point we will see an increase in medical students coming through. We will see an increase in nursing students coming through. But at the moment, I think we need to think really imaginatively about who else can help us in this work and not always assume it has to be the GP or the nurse. Thank you, Maxine. Yeah, so uh, it's a great conversation. and I, I spend probably 90% of my week um, working with clinicians who are leading change. And um, and, and across the board, I think one thing that's, that comes out that perhaps hasn't been mentioned just yet is the, um, the way we use data and information. So I think as a system, culturally, we've been really quite good. We've, we've indeed, we've got PhDs in um, looking over our shoulders at what happened in the past. And when you move to a, a, a place where you want to improve things, you need data that is real-time, at your fingertips, that you can understand. And I think as a system, we, we need to think really carefully about how we can enable that. Because as soon as you hand that to clinicians, their analytical thinking kicks in and they're able to solve problems in a much more meaningful way than you <coughs> often see um, people's kind of trying hard to make change happen but really feel like 
feeling like they're in a fog. So how can we be clearer about the information we're using? And in, indeed, how can we develop health informa information systems such that we can predict and prevent rather than constantly react? And I think that's part of the toolkit that we need to think about for clinicians really seriously moving forward. Andrew. I sometimes wonder whether um, if all of the effort that had gone in on the commissioning side over the last few years, 25 years possibly, um, had been put in on reorganisation, reorganising the provider side, we would have cracked it by now. Um, Lots of nods around the table. <laughs> tell, us, tell us more about that. Well, I think, I think, I remember listening to a really good talk here a few years ago by Michael Dowling, um, who ran a big ACO in uh, America with his American Irish draw. And um, he didn't seem to have any problems, or at least any problems he was admitting to, because he ran the hospitals, he ran the health centres, the primary care. He understood the, the value of patients having a medical home, knowing who was providing their care and trusting that. He didn't have problems with social care because he ran social care. He didn't have problems with the ambulance services because he ran a fleet of ambulances. And I think this, this maybe is, is the direction of travel where we're going with, with, with ACOs. So um, accountable care organisations responsible for a population? Yes. Yes, and then you only have one pound. So if we're doing it where we're doing it in North Hampshire, there's only one Hampshire, North Hampshire NHS pound. And it has to be spent as wisely as possible, as opposed to the, the tearing at that pound, which is, is happening at the moment. So I think with those, if we genuinely move to a commissioning light, outcomes-based with your defined population and your capitated budget, but I think there is some great talent and there's a lot of hard work going in on the commissioning side at the moment. But I just wish that was going in on organising the, the provider side and breaking down some of these, these walls. I think, I think you know, we've talked about the role of Public Health England. Um, I think public health doctors will become absolutely crucial in providing advice on how you best manage populations of 250,000 or you know, if that is the sort of minimum side of an ACO. But people who are running the, the, the smaller bricks of those units, you know, the, the 30 to 50s and the three and a half thousands, you know, they will want information. And actually, I think if the beauty of general practice, which we've talked about, is the continuity of care, the cradle to grave, actually you don't need massive numbers of risk stratification tools because if you know your patients and you've got people who, who, who are visiting the elderly, uh, generally nurses routinely, then you can anticipate problems much more and you deal with things more quickly. There will also always be a bit of a tension between the needs and wants of the individual versus the available resources for the organisation. And I think if you know your patients, as Martin said, then those difficult conversations are easier to have. Thank you. Amanda? It builds very neatly, actually, on what Andrew was just saying, but uh, slightly from left field, I think one of the key roles uh, that doctors can have in, in meeting patient uh, demand better um, is in redesigning the financial flows, uh, not only for organisations, but also for personal uh, remuneration, so that there is an alignment around uh, meeting health uh, needs and improving health outcomes more so than activity, more so than some of the small elements that we have in different small pockets of uh, remuneration for GPs, for example. Um, but if we had a common uh, payment mechanism uh, across care pathways and across places um, for different professions um, that aligned around improving health outcomes um, and uh, managing demand appropriately, um, then I think that that would make a big difference. I think that we need a far greater clinical uh, influence on how those conversations about uh, financial flows in across health and care are happening at the moment. Um, I would just like to um, mention the importance of which outcomes we choose to uh, value and hold people accountable for. Um, that's uh, by default, uh, the NHS um, holds people to account for the money for a narrow range of access targets and for essentially not being an outlier on mortality and a few other clinical indicators. It's, it's so the, although we measure quite a lot of stuff about patient experience, um, people aren't held accountable for that in the same way. So the, we could do all the rewiring of the system and create ACOs everywhere, but if people still feel that they're focusing on the money and the targets, uh, then some of the really important uh, 
changes and improvements may, may not be given the drive and priority that, that we need. So I'd like to see a, a much more integrated health and care system uh, that holds people to account for how well supported people feel, um, their quality of life, um, their um, um, confidence in managing their own condition, their sense of the coordination of the care. We measure lots of this stuff at the moment, but then the data is just sits there and nobody does anything with it, which seems a terrible shame. So, and part of the, the purpose of the Realising the Value programme that I mentioned earlier was to talk about what, what matters to patients, what do patients and communities value, and how do you reflect that value in the way you organise uh, services and hold people accountable for how well they're doing. Judith. Yes, you know, just one other, perhaps slightly uh, left field uh, uh, contribution is that um, something that's really struck me from working closely with um, some of the, the clinical researchers and scientists at, at the university is getting to understand more what's coming down the track for us in terms of uh, personalised medicine and, some, and precision medicine, some quite different uh, clinical innovations, which I think at some point, and I don't know what point that will be, but will quite, potentially quite significantly change the interaction that each of us perhaps has with particularly a specialist clinician or perhaps eventually with a, a, a general practitioner. And we might have very different sort of approach to outpatient services or the, you know, the treatment that's right for me might not be right for you because um, I, you know, just because my genetic makeup, it's not going to work with me and so forth. So I'm just putting that into the discussion that that's going to also just cause us to think differently. It, it is really ultimately about resources that will be used or not used but we'll be sometimes thinking in that very individual way as well as importantly we've talked quite a bit about how we deal with populations so I think it's just how we manage to sort of connect up what's happening in the kind of clinical research part of medicine but with the day-to-day -day planning of the delivery of services I think is also going to be really important. Yes because I mean just speaking I, I worry about the, the fact that as, uh, shifting resource into that direction when we've got so many basic problems just with social care mm -hmm. you know um, drug misuse, alcohol misuse, obesity these, these, these incredibly um, huge challenges that we face um, and, and we don't you really seem to have an answer for I, <laughs> I don't mean to bring in a, a, a negative note but it does seem like an enormous challenge that the health system currently faces and I, the public health angle seems to me to be crucial um, comments on that Ash just you know, I, there's, there's a whole element around personalised medicines and the direction of travel and how that will impact and what the changes that will make but again just to pick up something that Jeremy said and the almost public health bit of this is that we have to remember people are individuals and therefore, how do we make things that work for them when we're, when we're delivering care? So I know that when I talk to patients about their diabetes, when I'm trying to help, help and support them, is that we, between us, set a goal as to what they want to achieve, because that becomes achievable, rather than this expectation that there's a target I have to hit, therefore I'm going to get you to that point, which becomes really hard. And for the patient, becomes a, a bit of the, well, I'm never going to get there, so I'm not going to bother at all, almost. And I think we have to recognise that at the same time as we try to create systems which identify what the general outcomes are that we're trying to achieve, actually the individual outcome is really critical. And if we are better at that, what we'll tend to do is get people who will have more confidence in being able to manage and support themselves and feel more com confident in their own capability to achieve the end goal. Because we're all in a, in a, of a nature that... We will do what we can and where we think we can achieve. But if somebody says to us, try and achieve that target, it's not going to happen. It's a bit like the funding stuff at the moment, you know. There's some really heroic targets being set. And actually, are they achievable? And will people just go, well, not a hope in hell making that, so I'm not going to bother at all. And that's a real risk we carry across the system. Whereas if you give something which is, gives people the, a chance to be able to get close to it or be able to get to it, you think, actually, I'll do that and I, I will strive to achieve that point. I think we have to do more of that recognition in terms of working with patients. Again, as part of that conversation, working with people to understand what their desire is and therefore how do I help you to get to where you want to be rather than where I want you to be. If, if a, um, a doctor's listening to this thinking, what could I do, uh, especially if maybe they're coming up in their career um, wondering what, what could they individually do in the next um, few months, years, to, to uh, contribute to a, a better outcome for their patients generally um, and to reduce demand, um, to reduce medicalisation. What, what would you suggest, Eileen? Um, I think there are several different ways you could approach this. 
So thinking about colleagues working within the hospital sector, some very, very simple basic things which hopefully we're all doing already around hand hygiene, falls prevention, all those things that we can do to reduce harms in hospital because we know that that clearly would reduce demand for, for further medical care. I think within um, the kind of primary care setting, I think we could certainly start trying to look at how we could use the technology we already have, because this isn't a particularly difficult one, to be saying if a patient's had more than two admissions, how can we think about how we might approach that patient differently to look at what are the factors that are getting under the skin. And I know that was part of the 2% work, but I think many practices didn't have the headroom to actually do as much as they would like to have done with that work. So I think we shouldn't, as that particular aspect of the contract moves on, we shouldn't lose that focus. We need to think about how we could focus more effectively there. And as, as we've discussed quite a lot already this morning, that doesn't necessarily mean the GP, the doctor, is going to do all of this. But someone actually within the practice has the role of looking at what, what's, what's driving that demand and is it something that actually could be met in a better way that would meet more appropriately what that person's need really is. So I think those are things that we can do here and now without waiting for new models and, and great further changes. Thank you. Andrew? Um, I, I think it, it, it's probably an understanding that, that we try and do the best we can for our individual patients. Because if we do that, then we, we, we are doing it for our population if that population is then three and a half thousand. Um, and we do it for the larger, the, the large scales up. Because if we, if we do it from the basic building block and we offer great care, then actually the cost to the whole system are, become less. Um, and also that, that really there is a joint responsibility about how we spend money. And, and the, the silos that still exist, however hard you know, our efforts are to break them down, are not really working at the moment. But, but that when we are spending the pound, you know, we are spending it as wisely as possible. Maxine. Yeah, I think, I think for me it feels like we, uh, we need a greater recognition of the complexity of the systems that we work in and the interconnected nature of them. And I think some of this, you know, taking responsibility for a local population, whatever size that might be, will help with some of that. And I think we need to be much more comfortable um, with reaching out into areas which may not necessarily, you know, classically now be within our boundaries. So we've talked about housing, we've talked about education, we've talked about leisure. There's a role for clinical leadership in supporting people to improve the social determinants of health. We should never forget the respect that comes with being a doctor and how that can be a very powerful lever in the system to effect change much more broadly than just your individual patient interaction. Thank you. Amanda? Um, being louder uh, about the role in public health um, and uh, yeah, picking up on that voice about the power, of a, uh, the power of a doctor's voice in improving public health and in uh, making places work together across housing and education and social care and what have you uh, so that we're affecting communities um, so that the focus is wider than the individual patient. It includes the individual patient, but it's wider. Candice? So I, I would really ask people to really understand um, the demand that is coming at them and to realise that um, supporting improvement of meeting that demand is a really key part of their role. Mm. I'd say that um, and being a, a good doctor is clearly about giving the best care you possibly can to the patients you're responsible for, but also always seeking to improve those services and that care is also a, a great and actually very fulfilling part of being a doctor where you can make that happen so not to be scared of getting involved in whatever the whether it's um, having a bit more of a role in managing the local care team taking on a wider role in the primary care federation or super partnership trying out being a clinical director that all of those they are huge and really important contributions to care and future health I think recognising the skill mix you have within a community, which is also the community itself, and seeing how we utilise that more effectively, and not expecting that the solution always has to be the doctor, or the nurse, or 
it can be individuals on their own right, but actually reinforcing that and actually as we work into those smaller communities is being really clear about what capacity and skills we do have within that to be able to make and meet the things that we need to be able to do. Because again, it will vary from area to area, the skills you have, the capabilities you have, but you have to then utilise that and nurture that to be able to deliver the right things on behalf of the whole population. Andrew? Yes, I think, I think you know, it is around teamwork. Um, I mean, Ash, you know, was talking about managing diabetes, managing COPD. Um, it, the patient with COPD needs something different at different points of, of his illness. Um, you know, he may need a physiotherapy to help him with breathing exercises. He may need an OT to sort his steps out. He may need um, the pharmacist to optimise the medication. Uh, he may need the GP to prevent an acute admission at some time. So it's, it's around teamwork. Um, you know, I think the GPs are, are, are best placed to, to coordinate. Um, um, and also, you know, whether I mentioned, you know, it is genuinely about advocacy, being, being the advocate of the patient, keeping the independence to be able to do the right thing for the patient, uh, which will in me mean some pushback on some of the targets and things. Um, but again, if, if you get it right, it's, it's better for the patient experience and it's cheaper for the system. So when I talk to our, our medical students at UCL, um, I say to them, the biggest difference between your generation and my generation is you will need to accept your responsibility as a, as a system leader. And when I look in their eyes, I can see a combination of fear and excitement when I, <laughs> when I, when I say that. And, and, and the issue there is system leader at all levels. Within the individual consultations that you're having with patients, your responsibility to manage resources effectively and more broadly at a commissioning and provider level within the wider system and outside the healthcare system. And um, I, think, I think, as Maxine says, doctors have an enormous um, power and level of trust within the community and therefore have a um, currently um, unrealised potential to address these issues around resource use. Jeremy. Well, not every clinician needs to or can or wants to get involved in systems leadership and wider management issues, but every clinician can ask themselves, Am I, do I really understand my patient? Am I really listening to them? Am I really helping them? We've, we've spoken a lot about managing patients and managing populations. I think uh, clinicians should stop managing people and help their patients manage better. Uh, there is a growing movement uh, um, for a different style of medicine. Uh, in Scotland, they call it realistic medicine. In Wales, they call it prudent healthcare. In England, we lack an overall banner, but there are various things going on, like choosing wisely, right care, shared decision-making. Uh, at heart, it's working in partnership with patients and their families and understanding the, the communities um, um, yeah, from which they come uh, and of which clinicians are often a part themselves. Um, so every clinician can be moving towards a more partnership, collaborative model um, and, and we can you know, wait a bit longer for the wider system reforms that may or may not come, may or may not come in the form we want. We can all do something about it. Thank you very much all for joining us. I'm sure these discussions will continue through the day. Uh, if you're listening to this on our podcast, please do send us your comments through the rapid responses. Thank you all.